Hello, Champagners, and welcome back to the Champagne Rugby Podcast. On today's episode, we have former England rugby captain Chris Robshaw. Chris, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Um, but yeah, it's nice to see you. It's a pleasure, pleasure to have you on. So, Chris, on, on the Champagne Rugby Podcast, it's all about sort of high-level rugby players and how they've got to where they've got to and what made them. So, walk me, walk me through Chris Robshaw and what has been the making or the challenges and the journey that you've been on to be where you are today? Yeah, I mean, it depends really where you want to start. But as, as a kid, I was always very sporty. Um, I, was, I was very dyslexic, so I wasn't really, I wasn't academic. I didn't really enjoy being in a classroom. I always wanted to be out playing any type of sport, anything I could, a full racket, anything I could do. Um, as I got a little bit older, I, I got a little bit bigger. Uh, which generally helps him in rugby. And towards probably that kind of mid-teens, I started to really excel. I got picked up by Harlequins, I think, when I was 17 years old. I joined the academy programme, so I meant in the holidays, I would go and do like a week's training camp, and they would send me weights programmes and monitor us and watch our games and give us some feedback. I then left school and, yeah, went straight to Harlequins, um, and yeah, it was incredible for me. It was a, a team I supported as a kid and getting to play for them and captain them, win stuff with them. It was an absolutely incredible honour. What was your kind of early life like and sort of who inspired you to get into rugby and who were some, some of your role models growing up? Yeah, unfortunately, my, my father passed when I was five years old. Um, and I think with that and the dyslexia, it made me extremely kind of angry and frustrated. And I was uh, as as a young little boy, I was I had this pent up aggression in me, and I think I think for me, I, rugby allowed me to get out in a, a league away. Of course, nothing stupid, but it allowed me to tire myself out, physically wear me down a little bit. So on the weekends, I would go and play mini rugby, and I'd get home and play in the park with my brothers and gardens and all that kind of stuff, and it was brilliant. Um, and that kind of that really drove me on. I think I've definitely got my mum's work ethic. It was, yeah, mama, three, three uh, pretty terrible boys, but it was um, challenging for her, I'm sure. Um, but no, it was, it was great. And look, like I said, I, I had opportunities and then I was in the right place at the right time to be scouted at that point um, and then go from there. With your brothers, what's sort of the age gap between you guys? So there's two years between all of us. I'm the middle one. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm 37 now. My older brother's 39. The little one's just over there. He's 35. Yeah. Was it quite competitive uh, between the three of you? Were you all sort of quite sporty? We, we were, but the other two are definitely more social rugby fans um, and enjoy that. I think my little brother plays once a year, um, and I can't remember the last time my older brother played. But yeah, they when I, when I was at Harlequins in England and stuff like that, they would always come and. They've actually both still got season tickets for Harlequins um, and they, they go uh, numerous times a year and, and enjoy and rotate and all that kind of stuff. So it's um, no, it's, it's great that they're, they're still kind of big rugby fans. But yeah, as, as kids, as you can imagine, we were squabbling a bit, um, pushing each other, good times, bad times, all that. Who, who won in the, the fights? <laughs> no, I'm not sure about that. I, I mean, I was probably the biggest. So if it came down to sitting on each other, probably me. Fair enough, fair enough. And what was there any sort of moment during your 
um, younger life that was kind of like a defining moment where you realised that you were going to pursue a career in rugby? You know what, there, there probably wasn't until I was about 21, um, in honesty. When I was growing up, I'm not sure how old you are, but when I was kind of teens and, and coming through school and all that kind of stuff, there wasn't much rugby on TV. You got the five nations back there, obviously, the six nations, which would be on. Then you'd have, obviously, World Cups and maybe the odd premiership final game and stuff like that. It wasn't it wasn't massively on TV. I remember going to Twickenham once um, on a school trip, and it was, I think it was... It was one of the finals or semi-finals or something, and we saw Martin Johnson come down and Ben Kay and all this, and just seeing how kind of how big they were. But even when I first joined Harlequins, I, I was unsure. I, uh, my first year, I broke my foot twice. Second year, I broke my leg. The year after, I did all my knee ligaments. Um, and then you're thinking, is this game for me? Is my body up to it? Because unfortunately, there's numerous players who their body their body does shut down, and I was I was worried. I was seriously concerned. Um, and then post that I had a really good run I, I got in the first team and under Dean Richards at the time and then I, I kind of played ever since of course I had some injuries throughout my time post that but since that game I'd, I'd been starting and, and loved it We had uh, one of your teammates Joe Gray on a couple of weeks back who also went through a lot of injuries uh, how, how did you sort of overcome injuries at, also at such a young age it must have been quite mentally draining yeah, I mean, like, firstly, Grazer. Grazer is an amazing man um, and an amazing character. And look, Joe was a Joe was a, a good player, uh, and he won some stuff. But Joe's value is so much more than that. Um, and I think people often don't when you look at squads or makeup, and people might say, well, "Why is this person in the World Cup squad and not that person?" Because sometimes their value is so much more than that off the field. And Joe is definitely that person. Look, I'm not I'm not discrediting his rugby in any way, but he is. Um, a lovable character and he makes people smile. Um, and when you're away in camp for a long time, you need people like that. But yeah, in, in terms of my injury stuff, I, I remember speaking to my mum and she said, typical, typical motherly advice, have you tried drinking more milk? And I'm thinking, you know, I'll give it a go, but I'm not sure if that's the answer. And and then look, my, my fortune just turned and you ask any professional athlete or sports person, injuries are some of the toughest period because you're... You train on your own, you eat on your own, you're isolated, you're not out there actually doing the bit on Saturday, you don't feel you're part of it, but you're not part of it. Um, and it can be really tough, especially with injuries, because not often with an injury, it's smooth sailing. You normally have a couple of good weeks and you might have a little setback and then you go again, a little setback. It's, it's very rare that you continue to go smooth. So you, emotionally, you are a little bit up and down in that period. So having good people around you, I think when I was younger, I was I made sure I'd come in, do my rehab as well as possible, but then try and switch off, see other friends, not rugby friends, other friends, which allowed you to not talk about rugby and stuff like this, where mentally you could escape for a bit. Yeah, I think that's probably something I should probably try and apply to my life um, in terms of having a balance between work and social life. Um, but I guess rugby comes into that as well. Uh, so it's hard to get away from it sometimes, but it is what it is. What it was? Is. I mean, it's easiest to done. We always say about balance, and look, no, it's perfect. I'm, I'm definitely not. Um, we, we try there, don't we? And, and and that's the thing. I think you've got to learn. And no, I, I'm I'm still in that thing where I'm a bit all over the place now, and I kind of probably work a bit much, and I think you know what, 
and I need to have a bit of family time and I kind of knock that out of my head and I um, so I don't I don't think anyone's perfect, but you can you can try and try and get better for sure. And I definitely try. How's it been uh, transitioning to fatherhood? You know the the whole um, transitioning's been really interesting. I think look, when I when I left Harlequins, I was thirty four years old. I went to America, uh, played at San Diego over there, which was was so different from living in Wandsworth, Southwest London, commuting to Danny Avery, Gilbert, playing at Twickenham which I had done for the previous 18 years, 16 years, whatever. And it was just, for me, mentally, it was, uh, even though I had some injuries over there and we we didn't have much success on the pitch and stuff like that, it allowed me mentally to almost end the rugby chapter. And it really, look, when I, when I was there, I was training as hard as I could and playing as hard as I could. But in between that, I was relaxing and I was enjoying the beach and I was enjoying family time and the sun was always shining. So you're, you're trying to go surfing or electric bikes and mentally just it's a different way of life whereas in England there's there's rugby dinners and, and charity events and appearances and stuff like that there's there's generally a lot going on whereas over there as you can imagine most Californians it's a it's an expensive life but it's a very simple life yeah um, and it was really really beneficial to me and, and my wife and look we had our, our kid over there um and it allowed me to spend more time. When you weren't travelling with the games, you had a lot of time at home. Um, I'd just be around, take them to the beach um, and, and, and have those moments. Because everyone always says, look, the time goes quick with a child. I don't know if you have kids and you, you try and be around as much. And there's a lot of sayings where on your deathbed, you never wish you worked more. Yeah. You always kind of wish you'd spent more time with your friends and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's trying to remember that I'm in, a, I'm in a fortunate position at the moment with with my jobs and the time I'm working and opportunities I have, um, and I get to spend a little, a little bit more time with him than than some people probably do. Were you playing alongside uh, with Manonu at the time when you were in California? Yeah, I was. Ma was there. Uh, we shared a couple of car lifts and stuff, and he was a, a great guy. I think he's 40, 41 now, and he's still going strong. Uh, but but what a player! I mean, I remember, I remember when I played New Zealand for the first time at Twickenham, and as I've opened the changing door, he stood there looking to get out of the pitch, and I just remember that thing like because that I grew up watching him. That was the first time I'd ever interacted with with the All Black, and Marnonu just stood there, and I was like, oh my god, like this is this is what it's about. Like you have that moment and you're into it, and then I, I we we got on well over there speaking to him. And he early on in our conversation, he just said, "How about 2012?" And I was like, "What? What?" He goes, "That's when you beat us." And he remembers every game he's lost. He doesn't remember the wins. He said he remembers, and the All Blacks remember every game they've lost, and that's what drives him on. So, um, no, interesting. And his rugby brain was, as you can imagine, was incredible. Like, like it's all you. As you get a little bit older, you probably lose that little bit of pace and, and stuff like that. But his skill level and when he wanted to turn it on or when, when he was able to turn it on was still still top draw. I mean, what's incredible is that that day, oh, New Zealand back in 2012, I remember exactly where I was watching that match. And I had uh, goosebumps throughout the whole game when we, when we took on the All Blacks. What was it like? You were captaining that game. What was that like for you? 
Yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, I'm glad we had a Manu Tuolangi with us that day because he was, uh, I think he was running over people, getting interceptions, smashing people into fence. Um, he was man possessed, and it was just it was just one of those days. I've never heard Twickenham that loud, and it was absolutely rocking, and uh, the crowd was going mad. And I remember guys after the game. And look, I, I played New Zealand, I think, five times, and I've only beaten them once. Yes, you've come close and ifs and buts and bounces balls, but it's still not a win. Um, and unfortunately, that's been the only time. And, and from that game, actually, I don't have much memorabilia and stuff in the house, but I've got mine and Richard McCall's shirt uh, framed, uh, which was which was always a, a nice thing. And look, whenever you played New Zealand, it was always special, like facing a hacker. As a, as a kid, it was a, a brilliant part of sport. I don't think it... It didn't overcycle me. It didn't demotivate me. It was just every every childhood rugby fan has probably done the hacker at some point in their living room, watching it and being or emulated it. And to face it at Twickenham, where you have eighty thousand people singing like a swing low or the national anthem, to facing it in New Zealand, where you have rows of people in the try line behind them and thousands in the stand doing it, and you can hear the ground kind of shake. Um, these are those special feelings which I think you think when people say do you miss rugby no you don't miss rugby you miss some moments you miss the occasions and they're definitely some of them did you have did Chris uh, did um, Richie say anything to you uh, sort of off the pitch after the match was there any sort of specific moments that you can recall no no, not massively he was pretty quiet to be honest um and it's actually one of those, those situations where when, when you play against each other, you don't actually get to know each other much. You might have a quick beer, but one of you's in a bad mood, one of you's happy, you're kind of swapping pleasantries. And unless you know, I don't know, obviously we play New Zealand now and both my ma and, ma and myself were still playing, we'd probably talk a bit more and interact on a bit more of a personal level. And I, I said like, because myself, there's quite a few players now of my kind of age and bracket who are playing a lot against each other. So myself, like Rory Best, uh, Johnny Barkley, Sam Warburton, um, and we're doing a lot of appearances and corporate work together. We are actually saying we spend more time now and actually got to know each other more now in the last, I don't know, year, in the last, than the previous 15 years playing against each other and competing. So when you're playing, you're edgy, you're... You're, you've got aggression to this person, that, and all that kind of stuff, and hostility and the rivalries and stuff like that. And it's, I think when you retire, you relax a little bit, don't you? Yeah. But I think with Brittany, he was, um, he was always, always very, very humble. Um, I remember he said one thing and he just said, look, we just, we just know how to take those small moments at the right time. And he said, it's, it's not a big thing, but especially that, that generation between, I mean, what was it, 11, 2011 to 2016? They were two World Cups. Don't know how many rugby championships. I think they won every one. Um, but it was so clinical. Like, if they got into your 22, you're in trouble. They were, they were probably having a 75% conversion rate if they broke through. And they were they were better than anyone else. And I, I believe that, that team at the moment is probably the best. People might say the 05 New Zealand side when they when they battered the Lions, moving out. But for me, that was the best the best kind of team out there. Yeah, I think it's been hailed throughout rugby history and sport history as probably one of the greatest teams to ever grace a sport in terms of domination and just pure uh, de democracy there. Um, and 
do you think any team kind of comes close nowadays? Uh, we look at New Ireland had quite a look, strong outing against England on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, they did. And I, I think, look, people are, especially at that level, you're judged on silverware, aren't you? It's uh, international sport of silverware. Yeah, you can, you can have good series and you can do this. And Ireland winning down in, in New Zealand was absolutely incredible. And I mean, I can't even remember last time someone won a series down there. Um, and now we're going to history books. But winning back-to-back World Cups is, and winning silverware and and winning championships like they did the Rugby Championship numerous times, time and time again, home and away, going to the Northern Hemisphere, winning everything. Um, it's those type of things which take time. So I think in, unless you can do, like I said, those back-to-back World Cup, of course, if you win a World Cup, that's... That's incredible, but I think they're the only team in, in history to win them back-to-back. Yeah. South and Africa uh, got a chance this year if they can pull it off. They've got an opportunity and, and look, South Africa, when they get to knock out rugby, are always good. Especially World Cups, they know what to do. And and I was just watching, catching up on the uh, the Wales game now. And I think everyone kind of thought, you know what, they're going to be there or thereabouts. But yeah, they looked pretty good, didn't they? Yeah, they, they had a nice run out uh, last weekend, I, I have to admit. Um, I just before we before we move on to sort of the World Cup preparation, I just wanted to sort of take go back to when the you were appointed to England rugby captain. I, I think that's quite a significant honour and responsibility. Can you share sort of your initial thoughts and feelings when Stuart Lancaster chose you for that role? Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. Of course, hugely nervous as well, um, and I remember being so nervous and, and speaking in the huddle, the first huddle after being named captain on the training pitch, all the guys around me, I, I probably said a load of rubbish, to be honest. And Andy Powell, who had captained Great Britain Rugby League at a very young age, maybe 18 or 20 years old, so extremely young, and kind of said, look, now you can relax. You've, you've done the hard bit. You've had that initial chat because you, you build stuff up in your head and everyone thinks they have to be a, a Martin Johnson or an Al Pacino. Do you know what I mean? It's that, that type of thing. And you, you have to be yourself because that's what got you there. Um, so again, then having that confidence, but also it's it was surrounding myself with good people who were extremely helpful, whether that be other coaches or people on the pitch like Dylan and uh, Brad Barrett and, and Owen, even Owen there who hadn't even had a cap. He was still, he was still a leader. Um, and you look at what he's grown into now is is absolutely incredible. What was a young Owen Farrell to be a, like to be aside? I, I think it was pretty the same. He was um, he was probably a little bit more hot headed. I think he's he's calmed down a bit in his uh, in his responses if if people have gone after him and stuff. And I think he's he's really worked on his leadership. I think he's really worked on his thing where. I think potentially when he was younger, he was a little bit brash. Whereas now he's he he still has that kind of intense side. But I think he, he understands people a little bit better. I think he knows that you can't just treat everyone the same anymore and, and stuff like that. So I think he's. But yeah, he was a tremendous talent from day one. I remember playing against him. I think when he was seventeen, and he was at Saracens, and he was a decent player. So yeah, to, to still go and to play. Well, he played a hundred plus times for England now, captain them at a huge amount, Lions, wherever he's won with thousands as well. He's he's not done too badly. He's had a, he's had a very good career so far, and I think it would be 
uh, silly if anyone disagreed with that fact. I, I know he's been getting a lot of uh, backlash in the media recently, but uh, he's done a lot for the country, done a lot for the sport, so 100% agree. Um, talking of media, uh, media and the public reaction to sort of England's 2015 early exit from the World Cup, I imagine that was quite intense. How, how did you personally cope with the, the criticism and backlash and how did it sort of affect your mindset going forward? Yeah, look, it, that was horrendous. Um, there's, there's no d denying it. We were extremely sh ashamed of, of how we did and we, we felt we let the country down and everyone, everyone down. It was, it was extremely tough and a couple of bounces of the ball with the decision I made and all that kind of stuff. It, it was tough because people were after us and uh, and sport can be fickle. They're, they're happy to pick you up, but they're quite easy to kick you on the way way back down as well. So it was about making sure you had good people around you. It was speaking to other previous captains and, and using their kind of knowledge of how they kind of came through stuff like this. And then it's about learning from that. And actually now, if I see a young guy going through a tough time, it's reaching out to them and say, let's you go for a coffee, let's go grab a smoothie, whatever it be. Uh, and have a chat and then it's down to them because at the time I don't think I dealt with it well I didn't I didn't open up to people I, I carried a lot of the burden myself um, and I think now obviously what is it eight years away or, or eight years ago or something so it's a long time I've, I've grown a lot I've learned a lot um, I'll treat things differently Was there any sort of significant conversations or people that you recall that reached out to you that helped you during that period? Yeah no, there was, there was there was a lot, to be honest. There was a lot. Um, and I remember like someone like Sean Fitzpatrick emailed me the the day after and said, look, nothing anyone can do or say at this point is going to make you feel better. But the sun will come up again. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week. It might even be next month, but it will come up again and you will be okay. And I think with actors, sometimes you just need time. Um, but yeah, look, so many people were great to me. Coaches, family, friends, all that kind of stuff. But... I just needed time really to to, to mourn um, and slowly, slowly pick myself up with with a, a lot of people giving me a hand. What What was some of the mental challenges that you had to overcome yourself? Oh, look, I think I think I, I was dead behind the eyes for a long time. I was going through the motions as at the club. I was I was a good enough player to to, to go by and do my bit. Um, I didn't want to put my head back out, back about in public and all this kind of stuff. But you feel shame. And I think when you're in those type of situations, it's hard to explain. You you almost feel like you're in a fog. You feel like you're in a fog and you, you can't quite see out. It's it's weird to explain. And it's a shame. It's a burden. And just gradually over time, it just fades a, a little bit further away. Um, but it, it does take time. And there was, a, again, a brilliant thing on social media and about Tom Hanks, the, the legendary actor, talking about things will pass. Good, bad, happy, unhappy, all these things. Eventually, things do pass. And um, and I, I, I love speaking to people at the top of the game. And Justin Langer is an, another one, the old Australian cricketer. And he said, in tough times, you need to hang in there and you need your mates around you. And then you need to get back up. And it's as simple as that. Like tough times, you do you just need to hang on in there because again, the things things do pass. And I've I've learned the hard way. You don't wish these things on anyone, but 
unfortunately, sport is a, an international sport is a roller coaster, and you have brilliant times, you have tough times as well. But hopefully, you can hang in there, good people around you, and come out the other side. You know, I, I think that yeah, I can relate a lot to what you're saying, not on a sports point of view, but on a personal point of view. I think we all kind of go through our different challenges and in life, and there's defining moments that kind of define who we are, and you just got to carry on and keep on pushing on and having your boys, having your friends uh, there during the process to help you through that is uh, powerful stuff, powerful stuff. And then obviously going from the World Cup, um, there was the transition from one head coach to another, which can bring, bring both challenges and opportunities. What were your sort of initial thoughts and emotions when Eddie Jones was appointed as England head coach? Uh, given that he, his previous criticisms of your playing style as well? Yeah, not ideal. Um, yeah, like Eddie had, had publicly criticised me, uh, which, yeah, like I didn't think I was going to play for England again, in all honesty. Um, but myself and Eddie had a very, very open chat. We had a one-on-one -on -one sit down behind closed doors and we were, we were frank and brief and honest with each other, which we always have been. Um, he's never tried to muck me around I've never tried to muck him around um, and then when we came into camp he, he said look there's a place for you in my side but it's not as captain and I was almost relieved you know I was looking forward just to going back out there and playing and going about my business and I would help help defensively and I'd hate with the breakdown stuff like that and I could I'll still still help around but I could focus on my own game instead of all the team and all that kind of stuff and bring what I, I did really well to the side. And yeah, look, we went on to win a Grand Slam that year, which was which was brilliant. And then we had a, a bit of success a lot in the next couple of years. And yeah, it was really, really, um, really good. Of, of course, you you felt for all those who, who fell away. And I think what you see now is the success that everyone those coaches has had, which they weren't, they weren't bad coaches. I think we just blinked at the wrong time, unfortunately. And may, maybe pressure got to us, maybe this. But you look at obviously what Stuart's done with Leinster and obviously over to uh, Racing now. Andy's doing, of course, with Ireland. Uh, Graham Roundtree with Munster. I think Mike Katz with Ireland as well. Uh, they've all had a, a huge amount of success. And I think you look at the England group as well. So, yeah, look, it just wasn't our time, unfortunately. Yeah, I think there's a right time and right place uh, for different coaches and opportunities. I mean, you like you said, with Lancaster, perhaps it just wasn't meant to be. And then he went to Leinster and he's done extremely well there. Similarly with uh, um, Farrell, he's, he's gone across to Ireland and now they're world number one, beating New Zealand on their own turf. Uh, Eddie as well, he, he had a lot of success and he's known for his sort of mind games and uh, unique coaching strategies, we could say. Uh, do you have any, do you recall any memorable or unexpected interaction with him uh, that could shed light on his unconventional approach to motivating players? Um, no, like, like I said, Eddie, Eddie didn't really muck me around. Like, he, did, he did play mind games with people. Um, but I think he kind of sussed out your character and if you would kind of fall, fall for stuff or or be manipulated or tested. He basically wanted to test people and see if they were up to international rugby and the stresses and strains and all that kind of stuff. I remember one uh, one pre-season, because whenever, when you were with England, you would tour in the summer, you would have your four or five weeks off, and then basically the first week, you'd be back. 
you might have kind of four days at the club and then you'd be in England camp. And then you would have another two weeks and you're kind of in, into the season. So it was quite a, it's quite a whirlwind pre-season. I remember that. And then that summer camp I went in, I'd had a, a good off-season. It was a year post-World Cup. I'd been going for over a year. I was mentally drained. I was physically drained. I just, and I went to America. Me and my wife went to America and we said, you know what? We, we did Route 1, which is an amazing holiday up the Californian coast. But we tried everything. We tried everything. The Twinkies, the taco stands, uh, you name it, we did it. Um, and, I, and I put on a little bit, a little bit of weight. And I remember as I was leaving, he, because we'd done our, our skin fat and our all that kind of stuff, he's just tapped me on the tummy and said to his mate in Australian, in his accent, sorry, he just said, don't bring that back to camp, mate. And I was like, yeah, sorry, Eddie. <laughs> I think I ran home that day. Trying to trying to sweat it off, so he's um, but he, he has these moments and look, he he tests people, he pushes people, but he's a fantastic man manager. Um, and I think with Australia, even though they've not had the results, he, he's he's got them playing a little bit, you know. And they they could they could upset people. Not saying they will, um, but they could. I think it's going to be interesting, uh, especially with the omission of Hooper and Cooper. I think that's quite a interesting decision. What's your kind of thoughts on the Australian squad selection? Yeah, look, Eddie's Eddie's no, uh, no, not adverse to doing that, is he? Unfortunately, I was I was in twenty nineteen myself. Dylan Hartley, Danny Care, Mike Brown, Ben Teo, all senior guys. James Haskell all senior guys who have played a lot and then weren't were in their World Cup stuff. So I think it's, I don't think it's too out in the ordinary for him um, to put his mark there, shake things up. And he does shake things up. I think making Will, Will Skelton captain, he's, I don't know him personally, but as a player, he's formidable. I mean, the amount of that size and that ability. And when he was at Saracens, he got incredibly fit. And you, you would have to have kind of three people on him. And if most of the time they would dummy him and go out of back, but then you've got three people sucked in, it's, it's using them as well as possible. Um, but look, time, time will tell. But you look at, with, with them, with with England as well, uh, we're a good side of that, a good side of that World Cup. So if you could, if you can get out of your group, there's there's an opportunity to, to progress. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this World Cup coming up, I think, once England's out of the pool stage, there's a high probability they'll probably be in the semi-final if they do well uh, against whoever's in pool C. I mean, considering the top five teams in world rugby are all on one side of the pool. It's madness. It's madness how it's, it's done so far in advance like that. I, I still don't understand why it is. Of course, we 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 had the issue in 2015 with it, with us, Wales and Australia all being big teams in the same pool. Um, you look at Scotland now as well. Scotland... Ireland, South Africa, all in the same pool. It's it's tough, and look, I know, I know. Of course, there's there's got to be planning, um, but does it have to be done that far in advance? I'm I'm not sure. I mean, you look at the the lesser nations who have to qualify for the tournament; they only find out within the year, probably. So, I'm sure things can be done and altered. What's your thoughts on Scottish rugby at the moment? I'm glad we're not playing them, to be honest. Um, they're good. They're really good and they're firing. And I think with Scottish rugby, the only thing they struggle with, though, is the strength and depth. So I think as long as they can keep their 15 and 23 players fit, I think they'll be okay. But 
who who's losing those games? Who's losing that those kind of group games at like Ireland, at like South Africa, Scotland? Um, I think it's Portugal in there as well. Mm, yeah, and I Tonga. And Tonga, yeah. So I, I saw one of my my friends who played for the American national side and he said, look, Portugal aren't a bad side. Of course, they're, they're going up against the big boys, but they're going to, they, they might rock a few few heads in, in there. So, yeah, look, it's it's tough. Um, but yeah, like I said, with England, it's be grateful that we're the other side. Yeah, 100%. Just kind of a, on, a, on a lasting note with Stuart there, coaches have a sort of lasting impact on players beyond the field. So reflecting on both Lancaster and Jones, can you share a particular advice, piece of advice or lesson uh, imparted by either coach that stuck with you throughout your rugby career? You know, I think I think I learned something from every coach I worked with. I think whether whether you're working with good or bad coaches, you they all had moments. They all had moments to get different things across. And I don't think any any coaches I work with were ever the same. And I think that's that's what's good. Some were extremely good hands-on coaches and coached every session and knew every bit of skill and all that kind of stuff. And others were observers and knew about culture and environment and structure of things and mind games and stuff like that and I think it's it's kind of picking bits from everyone it's similar to captains similar to leaders and and then almost putting that into your own self and saying like I said sure was fantastic hands-on coach and saying like his knowledge of the game was amazing and Eddie was very much a man manager coaching not not as good but his man management was brilliant whereas working with someone like Conor O'Shea was very positive whereas Dean Richards was a force <laughs> and one of those guys who didn't have to say much but just had the aura about him um, and again neither of them really coach and then Paul Gustav brilliant ability to get messages across and delivering presentations to break things down to different mindsets um, I'm trying to think of it. I mean Borthwick John Kingston the, the lot there's always there, there's always something I mean Steve Borthwick he's um, he's so detailed he know, knows everything. He'll If you want to do extras at six in the morning or 10 at night, he'll be there waiting for you to help you get better. Um, and they've all got these, and I think coaches to go that far have something special about them. They all have something. Even if people say they're a bad coach, there's something special in them which can get across to certain players. And, uh, and sometimes you click with a group and sometimes you don't. And it, it can be tough. And same as players, when you're, when you're with a coach, and I always say, a coach has like a jigsaw. A coach has a jigsaw and you're a piece. And for some coaches, your piece might fit and it might fit bang in the middle there and kind of be quite a place. And other times, you know what, you're trying to jam it in and it doesn't quite work. Um, and I think as you get a little little bit older, hindsight's a wonderful thing and you get a bit more philosophical and stuff like that. But yeah, whenever you don't play, it still hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Selection is always a mental game in many aspects of the sport. And I can imagine not being selected is always it it's tough. It's tough to get through. What's what's your kind of thoughts on the transition from Eddie to Steve Borthwick? I, I mean, there's been quite a lot of I'd say in the last 18 months, there's been a lot of significant, impactful changes in coaching setups across Australia, Wales, Argentina, England, uh, New Zealand that have kind of shook up 
a lot of the preparation. I remember Eddie was saying uh, it takes four years to build a World Cup squad and it's all about the preparation. And then it, I think 12 months out of the World Cup, he's then booted off and Steve Borthwick comes in. What's kind? Of, how do you think that's shaken things up? Yeah, look, I think I think it was it was always going to be tough for Steve to come in, but I think you look at the impact he's had, and look, the, the results definitely definitely haven't gone to, gone to plan. You look at what he's done to the set piece; he's made that a real force again. I think to to be successful in anything, and you look at teams that are successful, they always have a set piece they can go back to. They always have an ability to tire teams out, to get penalties, to to take teams forwards, in particular their legs away. Um, which I think has been incredible. I think they're, they're first throughout the, the Six Nations sides than they were in the Six Nations. I think we've also this England side as well. Don't underestimate them. You look at and Stuart was very much about this. It was about how many caps players had on average going into World Cups and what is the right number to be successful. You look at this squad and a lot of them, and even the young guys are... The Freddie Stewart, the Marcus Smith, they've all got 20, 30 caps. Ellis Gens, who is still seen as a young guy, just got his 50th cap on the weekend. And then, of course, you have the, the experienced vets who have been to two or three World Cups already, played in big tournaments, had success, had failure. I know what it's about. And I, I think, yes, they, ha they haven't gone particularly well in the, the warm-up so far, but I, I really wouldn't write them off at this point. Yeah, especially with the route to the semis is quite, it, you would argue it's a lot easier than Ireland or New Zealand's route to the semis. Yeah, definitely. And, and then you get to those type of games and it's it's nervy, it's pressure, it's it's a bounce of a ball, it's a decision. All these kind of things, it, it can go in many different ways and, and pressure, and then all of a sudden you could be in a final, having a shot at it from being nothing because you... But yes, but yeah, firstly, let's, let's get out of the group and then, and then go from there. Talking of leadership, obviously, Owen Farrell, like we've mentioned a few times, he's going to be playing a key role uh, in the leadership of this England side. And he's a very influential character. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Ollie Lawrence on the, on the podcast and he even he was mentioning how, how much of an impact Faz has on the team and on the men, mental side of the game for the players. Uh, and recently he's been... There's been a lot of news around Faz with the media about the high tackle and whether there is a whether there's going to be a ban or not for him from his previous offensives going to tackle school and everything like that. So, what do you think? Uh, in a do you think it and a punishment is appropriate for Farrell? Um, and does do you think he deserves a game ban? And if so. Uh, how many games would would you think? I think he's getting the appeal through. I would give him, I would give him none. And give, them, give them all none. Give England their best players. Um, yeah, look, it, look, it, it is tough. Um, but let's let's be honest. Who knows? But I think I think for it to to hang around, I think is is the biggest issue when it comes down to preparation. To be to be kind of cleared and then kind of being brought back in. I think if they had said initially, I don't know, it's a two game ban, whatever, it's it's done. Whereas last week, obviously, it impacted last week. It's now coming to this week. It's their final game of, of getting guys game time. Can he, are England going to prepare for the game with, with Owen at 10 or at 12 or wherever they're going to play him? Or are they just going to have to play a lot of what-ifs? 
in training all week. So then if he's at 12, does that make it given that who's at 13 or who's on the wing? And are they going to kick a bit more if they've got a forward and a foul and all that kind of stuff? So it's, I think, and I think definitely from an England point of view, they'll just want an answer and just be done with it and move on. Uh, right, right or wrong, whatever it be, I think it's just having clarity around that. But look, you you, you never you, you never want these things to to go back anyway. A lot of the controversy has come around how World Rugby's conducting the bannings of different players. So there was a there was a Tonga player that got a I think an eight match ban for a tackle similar taste of Farrell's, uh, and Farrell got away uh, scotch free. A lot of people are saying. And there's been a lot of call for sort of justice and uh, the the fact that the bunker system was put in place and then taken back. A lot of people saying that it kind of delegitimizes the bunker system. I just wanted to know, do you think world rugby is sort of losing a sense of justice? No, I don't think, I don't think going that far, but I think it's, it's having consistency for sure uh, across the board, no matter what nation you're playing for, no matter what what the instance, instance are. If, if it's the same, then it should be the same same kind of outcome and all that kind of stuff. But I think from a, a bunker point of view, I think that was, um, that's been a great idea and that's been a great initiative so far. Because um, that could have taken 10 minutes in a game. I mean, you look at obviously the Billy situation as well. That could have been a 10 minute call where players are waiting, the crowd are waiting, the TV audience is waiting. So just deal with it there and then yellow card, off you go and then upgrade or downgrade or whatever it be. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely going to be a positive move for, for the World Cup. Yeah, I, I actually agree. I think the flow of the game definitely increases uh, with the um, with the bunker system in place. I mean, with England, we're quite lucky because we've got three uh, fantastic fly halves in George Ford. We saw how he sailed the team against... Um, against Wales last uh, the previous weekend. Uh, obviously, Marcus is that razzmatazz, Harlequin's boy, and you've got Owen. And obviously, you, you've you seen all of them coming up through the ranks, and you probably have quite... You've seen Marcus coming up through through Harlequin's and similarly with Owen with England. If if you had to... If you were Steve Borfick, who, who would you have starting at 10? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I would, I'd probably play Owen, to be honest. I mean, you look at his temperament, you look at his control, his his ability to, in those big moments as well, he, he morphed and not steps up, guides his side in the right way. Um, and they've all, they've all got different strengths, don't they? And I think that's what's, what we're very lucky about. I mean, we, being English, we moan about having too many options, don't we? It's that type of thing where, any other side in world rugby would probably bite a hand off to have three quality fly halves. And let's be honest, you could play any one of them and you'd be happy. You wouldn't be losing anything. And I, and I think that's a privileged position to be in because often with a, a, whatever teams, a lot of teams you're playing, sometimes there is a drop-off from the first to the second to the third. All of a sudden, you've got three incredible fly halves. We've, the depth of this England squad is going to be interesting. I, I'm, I'm interested actually to see not, not so much a fly half, more at number eight now. We've obviously the, the Billy situation. Who's going to step into that? Obviously, he's the only number eight. And I think that's, that, that's would they go Ben L? Would they put Jack Willis there? We haven't seen Tom Curry yet. Um, so I think that's more an interesting decision to be made than who's going to be at the, the fly half position. Because let's be honest, all those fly halves are brilliant. And they can all play the same style. They can all play different styles. 
um, and they can all guard a team around the field. Whereas the eight is is very going to be very different in the balance and all that stuff. I think. Who would be your starting back row for England? You know what I I would actually with the guys that they have. I would like to see. I think I think they'll play Courtney at six. I think his uh, his line-out ability and the strength of, and obviously Steve being a massive uh, line-out operator and the control that that can give a team around the pitch. I think they'll go him at six. I would like to see a potential Jack Willis. Jack Willis at eight. Um, either him or Ben L, and then probably Tom Curry at seven. Tom Curry at seven for the experience, I'd imagine. Uh, and that's the thing. He's a young guy, but he's got I don't know how many caps, 50 old caps now. Um, it's amazing. Or well, maybe not quite 50, but he's um, he's, up he's probably up, isn't he? And he's, uh, seems like he's been around forever. Yeah, he came in uh, just before the 2019 World Cup. But didn't he tour with you to Argentina? Argentina, yeah. Argentina 2017, I think it was, yeah. He would have been a young guy that you both played the same position, 6-7. Uh, did you see what were your first impressions of him? Yeah, so I played with him in the uh, in that second test in Argentina, and he was an eighteen-year-old kid. Him and his brother Ben, they were they they came in and and they kind of caused carnage. They were they were training hard. They were hungry to learn and absorb knowledge and get get the best out of it, out of each other, get the best out of the team. Always wanted to extras, being a sponge, um, and they're tough. They're, they're tough kids. Uh, they get knocked down, they they get back up, and and they just get on with things, which I think is is brilliant to have in a flanker. Do you think maybe Courtney could go to second row with Marrow, and then you free up a space for maybe having Ben Earl, Jack Willis, and Tom Curry all in the back row? Yeah, I think that is a, a real possibility. Um, but I think with Steve, I think the lineout's too important to him. And I think you would lose. I mean, you're then losing both Curry and I think Jack Willis is probably six three ish, but you're not six seven. And I think when you come up against a South Africa, you come out against a an Argentina, um, Australia, when they, and they've got that type of threat in the, in a lineout, it becomes important. Um, I can see that happening later in the game. Later in the game, if, if things do need to be mixed up, but I wouldn't expect um, to start that way. But I, I mean, playing Fiji this weekend, and I always thought as a player, I always needed three games to get match sharp. It doesn't matter how much fitness you've done. It's the three games. So actually, I, I think there won't be too... I think this team going into this weekend will be what is looking to start Argentina. They'll be looking at final combinations because you've still got, what is it, two weekends after this, two weeks? Yeah, yeah, yeah it that. starts on around the 11th or something like that. Two weeks Friday, yeah. So again, you'll be looking, and as a player, that's good. You've had a good three weeks. You can have a bit of a down week, maybe build up towards the weekend, weekend off, and then you've got a fresh week. The preparation's all, all kind of down and good. If there's any niggles in the body, any slight injuries, you can get them ready. Um, and that's perfect. Yeah, you don't want to have, you don't really want three weeks off. Three weeks is a bit long. No matter how hard you train, it's it's a bit too long. So again, yeah, if you can have a weekend off, good week of recovery, good week of kind of building up towards the end of the week, and then you feel fresh going in. Yeah, that that's kind of at your prime. What what are your predictions for the World Cup? 
Who do you think uh, are favourites? No, of, of course, I, I hope England go well. If it can't be them, let's say that. Um, I think the first game is going to be the last game. Who Who's going to win it? I don't know. I think it's going to be uh, France, New Zealand. Um, look, I think Ireland are going to do well. I think South Africa, of course, going to go well. Um, but I think in that pool, they're going to, they've got to play a lot of big games. I don't know if it was taken out of bodies. Whereas you think, yeah, some of the others probably don't have to play as many big games as that group do. Who, who would you, first test of New Zealand-France, who do you think is going to win? I think France. It'd be interesting to, to see how they go now. Uh, obviously, they've lost Natamak, uh, their flat half, um, and he's been key. People always say, does he score enough? Does he kick enough points? All that kind of, or he obviously doesn't kick. That's why he doesn't kick enough points compared to most fly halves, which people probably don't realise when they're talking about it. Um, but that, that'll be a big blow. And it'd be really interesting to see who's stepping into that position. Um, because obviously DuPont and him is... I mean, whenever you look at France going well, it's normally those two interacting. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be... A, I think that's going to have a big influence, to be honest. But I think they, they, look, they look superb. New Zealand look pretty tasty all of a sudden, don't they? Mm. From from being pretty quiet. Be interested this weekend. They play South Africa at Twickenham. Uh, are they playing a full team over here? Are they resting? Um, yeah, so that'll be... A, and obviously, South Africa on the back of a very good win as well. So that's going to be a really interesting game. Do you think Ireland will make it out of the quarterfinals? Yeah, I think they will. But I think I think with Ireland as well, and look, they're, they're amazing at the moment. In their group, they've got to play. Not obviously, they've got to play some of the the tier two nations, but they've got to play a big game against Scotland, who are, who are pretty damn good. Big game against South Africa. Then in the quarter final, they've probably got to play. Do you think they'll, or New Zealand? Do you think they'll top the pool, or essentially, do you think they'll beat South Africa? I think they will. I think they will. But I, th I think they'll get to a semi-final. Um, and then it'll be, be about their depth, I think, about their squad. I think their bodies will be starting to... to but again, look, this is... If we had a, a crystal ball and go down to the bookies, I would... Uh, but unfortunately, we don't. And, that, and that's why sport's brilliant. Maybe we need that Ollie the Octopus to come back and, and tell us who's going to win it. Um, yeah. But it, it could come down to a bounce of the ball. It could be a missed tackle. It could be an intercept. It could just be a yeah. team running away with it. Probably. And that's why it, it never. One of the most exciting World Cups coming up, that's for sure. So essentially, that would put Ireland in a semi final against, no, a quarter final against New Zealand after facing South Africa. Um, who do you. Who do yeah, <laughs> Ireland to New Zealand? You, you back Ireland? Yeah, oh, I'd, well, with my prediction of France to New Zealand, I don't. <laughs> look, I don't. Look, I don't know. Look, I could, I could, I could say here, and we can say this person, that person, but look, we're we're all hoping, we're all guessing. We're, but I think, yeah, I think France, New Zealand will will go well. Yeah, and then fi final final winners. If it wasn't England, who you saying? If it's not England, I'm going France. I, I think they're. They're, they're big, they're fit, they're in shape. They've got 
I think they got one more game. If I'm not mistaken, they got one more game to have a hit out. Because um, that first game, they looked a little bit off, as, as everyone did. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think they look pretty good. Yeah, okay. I think that's a good place to sort of end on the general questions. We're now just going to quickly move on to some fan questions, more sort of rapid fire, uh, and then we'll just wrap up the podcast there. So I've got I've got the questions written down, and I'll uh, just list off a couple from the best ones that got sent through. Um, first fan question, who do you think is the greatest rugby player of all time? Wow, huge question. Um, I think for me, being a back rower, Richie McCall. I think to lead, lead, well, win the amount he won, two World Cups, championships, super rugby titles. And obviously, as, as a player, he was someone I emulated or wanted to emulate. Um, so for me personally, I think it's it's hard to look too too much further than and and he was a lovely guy when you met him off the field. He he had time for people. Um and yeah, extremely impressive. What's the best back row you've ever played against? The best back row, wow. Uh, I mean it it might be that of of kind of Kano McCore and Kieran Reed, I mean that that, that wasn't bad. Um, I mean South Africa was always always yeah I'd probably say that that New Zealand back row at the time it was it was pretty pretty tasty. What do you think about Italian rugby? Uh, I, I think they they had potential, but I think it's tough for them. I think they're starting to play a little bit more than just with passion and heart and all that kind of stuff, which I think they 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 got themselves into a, a little bit of a rut with um, in terms of just trying to rely on scrums and malls. I think you look at them playing now, you've got players like Tommy Allen uh, putting the strings, playing two-sided attack, um, which, which definitely helps and they offer a little bit more. Whereas I think before they were just relying too much on scrum, malls, kicking, um, they haven't played another flanker at, set at number nine recently, so that's also always a bonus. Um, but yeah, they've they've not had a bad little warm up warm up game so far. So I think I don't know what what could we play in. Are they in New Zealand and France? I believe so. Yeah. So I mean, that. Like, it's gonna it's gonna be tough for them, isn't it? It's. Um, yeah, it'll, be, it'll be tough. But look, they, they are improving. Whether their score lines reflect that, I think performance-wise, they are getting better. Who is the? Who do you think is going to make it out of the pool Pool C between um, Australia, Wales, Fiji, Georgia, this pool? I think Australia will. Um, and then, all honesty, I'm not sure. Um I've not seen much of Georgia, but obviously they they beat Wales not recently last year, whenever it was. Um, so I think they could be a little bit of a dark horse. Wales, of course, haven't had the best thing they've they've left or ex a lot of experience has stepped away. So I mean they're gonna I think they're gonna have a tough time. Who comes out of that? I'm I'm not sure. I don't know if it's Wales. I think Fiji could be 
I think Fiji could beat them, but I think they could also lose a couple of games. Um, and I think for me, that's the most open group. Yeah, me too. The most open group. Probably more so than <laughs> the Scotland group. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's all over the place. Uh, the next fan question is, what's your favourite movie? My favourite movie? Um, Snatch. I really like Guy Ritchie's Snatch. Um, yeah. yeah, brilliant film. Brilliant film. Um, the next fan question, how is retirement going? Tempted to put back on the boots? <laughs> I'm really not. Uh, I've been asked to play in a couple of the England Island Legends games and a couple of Vets tournaments and all that stuff. And my, my body feels really frail now, if I'm honest. Uh, my shoulder's sore. Um, I think also kind of train as much as well. I mean, even trying to have a little wrestle with some mates I can't, in the sea, I was I was getting beaten up now. So it's, um, yeah, my body's not what it was. But yeah, there's there's no temptation for me to get a boost. So look, retirement's going okay. It's You have your wobbles every now and then. You miss the occasion, uh, but I'm okay. Um, the next question is toughest uh, player you've ever faced. Toughest player? Oh, I mean, there, there's been a lot. I think Dwayne Vermeulen. He was a, uh, and he still is. He's obviously he's not probably quite the player he he was, but he was just so aggressive with how he ran. <laughs> it was just he just wanted to get over the top of you. And South Africans are like that. They're so lovely off the pitch, and then as soon as you get on it, they they want to rip your head off. So it was always yeah playing against the uh, Saffers, especially over there in places like Ellis Park. Um, yeah, it was pretty tough. Do any of the players sort of play on your mind before a game? And you kind of, obviously you, you the part of the challenge is overcoming sort of any sort of worries or thoughts that you have. But is there any player that you weren't looking forward to tackling and you had a sort of nightmare about? Um, not massively, to be honest, because once you're into it and you've got the adrenaline and all that stuff, regardless of how, how big people are, how quick they are, I think you're just always worried about or cautious of their strengths. So, I mean, someone like whenever you played South Africa, you'd always be cautious of, like, a, in a different way, a Brian Habana. Because you know he's always poking his hands through to try and get that interception. As soon as he's got it, he's gone. So you're always a bit cautious if you're out on those channels looking to throw that pass. So it might not be a, a physical thing, but there's, there's things you're wary of, for sure. Did you come across Habana on the field many times? Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, we, we played against each other numerous times. Uh, and again, love, lovely guy off the field. And um, yeah, probably a little bit kinder than some of his other South African teammates on the field. I can imagine. Well, he's more so out on the wing and you're more got your head stuck in the rucks. Uh, yeah, I don't want to be near him, to be honest. If, I, if I'm opposite him, I'm in trouble. Um, the next fan question is. What's your gym routine? Well, now or when I played? Um, I mean, my, my gym routine at the moment is, isn't great. It's very much trying to keep the corporate world away from me and the corporate world away from my, my waistline. Um, so like, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of weights, running the odd 5K, um, stuff like that, nothing. And being out here in, in the sticks a little bit, there's... Um, Probably not as many kind of CrossFit gyms. I used to like a little bit of CrossFit and circuits, stuff like that. Uh, but being out here, there's probably not that many opportunities. 
Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of running, a bit of rowing. I like a I like to get on the rower, um, and then just some generic weights really. Okay, and then the final question uh, that we always sort of end on is. If you had one piece of advice for the champagners, the champagne rugby listeners, what would it be? The champagne listeners, get a good bottle. Get a good bottle of champagne. Yeah. If you're going to do it, get a good one. Yeah, exactly. Get it ready for when's the final? Uh, 23rd of October, end of October. I think it is the 29th October or 28th, something like that. That last weekend. Get a good bottle of champagne ready. That sounds like a good piece of advice. And if there was one uh, player or pundit that you'd like to see on the Champagne Rugby podcast, who would it be and why? Um, who would it be? Probably DuPont. I mean, he's uh, the superstar of, of rugby at the moment. I remember we played we played Cats year, years ago in the Heineken Cup and it was snowing in France. Uh, they were out of the competition already so they played much of a uh, and makes you side in and DuPont, this young 17-year-old kid or 18-year-old kid was playing. And again, he's he's not the tallest guy, and he was obviously smaller back then as well. He's, he's, he's stocky. And we're like, oh, who's this young kid going up against us? We need to go after him, get hold of him and all that. After about 20 minutes, he had dumped someone on his head. He'd got an interception. He'd broken tackles. He had scored tries. And then we thought, you know what, guys, let's give this guy a bit of credit. He's a... Uh, He's world class, and yeah, since then he's just gone from from strength to strength, and yeah, even even back at the age of eighteen, he was still dominating games. Do you think he'll go down as one of the best players of all time? I mean, he's he's winning a lot at the moment. Um, time will tell. I think it depends on his silverware, like you said earlier. Um, that will that will tell this World Cup if he handles the pressure and hopefully he doesn't get any injuries. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast for the last hour or so. I've uh, definitely taken a lot of inspiration and really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Hope you all, all enjoyed it and I'll see you soon, I'm sure. And where can the fans find you on social media if they uh, want to get see what Chris is up, Chris Robshaw's up to on his off time? Yeah, some of the usual, uh, usual social medias, Chris Robshaw, Chris Robshaw Rugby. Um, so yeah, come and come and find me. All right, thank you very much, Champagnes, for this week's episode with Chris Robshaw, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you.